If you have a Bible with you, would you like to be turning to 1 Timothy chapter 4? If you don't have a Bible with you, you'll be able to look on the on the screen behind me. <clears throat> Occasionally when we've been together, we've been looking at uh, the letter of 1 Timothy, and we're going to look at the whole of chapter 4 today, which I'll read uh, in just a moment. So if you found it, it says this. The Spirit clearly says that in later times, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. They forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth. For everything God created is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving because it is consecrated by the word of God and prayer. If you point these things out to the brothers, you will be a good minister of Christ Jesus, brought up in the truths of the faith and of the good teaching that you followed. Have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. Rather, train yourself to be godly. For physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. This is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. And for this we labor and strive. That we have put our hope in the living God, who is the savior of all men and especially of those who believe. Command and teach these things. Don't let anyone look down on you because you are young. But set an example for the believers in speech, in life, in love, in faith and in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture to preaching and to teaching. Do not neglect your gift, which was given you through a prophetic message when the body of elders laid their hands on you. Be diligent in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them, because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. We've been looking through letter of 1 Timothy. We've seen that there is there, in Ephesus, where Timothy is, a huge spiritual contest, a spiritual uh, battle is taking place, and that's why Paul is urging Timothy to stay put. And that's even seen here in some really big contrasts. There's a massive difference between Paul and Timothy on the one hand, who are passionate about the glorious gospel, of the blessed God, but then we find out here that some will or have already abandoned the faith, abandoned the gospel. uh, Timothy here, he's teaching the truth, he is sincere, he's a man of integrity. We could infer from the letter that he's not very confident, he'd kind of like to leave Ephesus really because it's difficult. And perhaps even from this passage, he's looked down upon because of his age. Incidentally, I think he was just in the prime of his life, which I'd probably put somewhere around the mid-30s, but that's incidental. Um, But he's being looked down upon. And then in contrast to Timothy, there are false teachers. They're described in no uncertain terms. These aren't just people with a slightly different view. 
or a, a different uh, way of expressing things, they're described here as hypocritical liars. So they're lying, and they know it, but they keep doing it. Uh, they may seem very plausible to those who are listening, and we might realize that they haven't, it's not like they stood up in the church and said, everything I'm about to tell you is heresy, don't believe it. They're, they're persuasive, they're convincing, they're polished performers, and they're drawing people away from true faith in the Lord Jesus. And so, but this is more than just the activity of people. Behind this, we see that actually what Paul is saying is the Holy Spirit is clearly saying something. The Holy, the Holy Spirit is communicating. And some, like Paul, will hear the Holy Spirit. But others are beginning to... Uh, follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. The Holy Spirit is teaching. And also there are evil, deceiving, deceitful spirits who are teaching as well, trying to persuade people away from the truth. Paul gives a couple of examples of this, um, which might surprise us. It might surprise us that, this, that, the, that these examples are thought of as uh, deceitful and demonic as opposed to religious, but that describes them quite well. The examples of their teaching are Christians must not get married, and there's a big list of foods that Christians must not eat. So that's the line that some of these other teachers are bringing, and maybe there's other examples besides. Those are the ones that Paul has picked up, and that's why he said, Timothy, Hymenaeus, and Alexander... Give them the right foot of fellowship. Just, they're out. They're doing so much damage. Why is that so damaging? We might think to us, it sounds really odd. I don't know that anyone's going to win much of a hearing today by saying, I I forbid marriage, I forbid sex, I forbid food on on this big long list. So why, why the attention on it here? Well, because the generosity of God is being misrepresented. There are people, there were people there in Ephesus teaching in such a way that profoundly misrepresented God and made him out to be lacking in grace, lacking in generosity. It's just as what happened all the way back in Genesis in the Garden of Eden. What happened there? God sets before Adam and Eve the most amazing garden. It is paradise on earth. And they're given, they're blessed and they're given permission to eat from every tree in the garden, oh, except one. So there's just, there's one tree. And it's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But what we see is a God who is abundant, a God who blesses, a God who gives, a God who is generous. And then a serpent comes into the garden. This is Satan. And notice that back in Genesis, he doesn't arrive with a big name badge on, saying, I'm evil, don't pay attention. He kind of presents himself as a friend, as though he's really there in Eve's best interests. And what's the first question that he asks? Did God really say you can't eat the fruit from any tree in the garden. As though he's saying, well, Eve, I'm just really thinking of you here. Just want to clarify. Did God say you can't eat from any tree? 
Well, no, God never said that. Can you see what he's doing? The first thing is he's is misrepresenting the generosity of God. God is completely generous and wonderfully good. And this little persuasive, slippery serpent comes into the garden to say, I don't think so. Are you sure? Are you sure your God is good? Are you sure your God is kind? Are you sure your God is generous? Eve, at that point, is able to answer the question correctly. No, he didn't say that. There's just this one tree. But in a way, she's taken the bait. She's believed. Or she has started to doubt the goodness of God. And then, from saying, didn't God say you can't eat any fruit from any tree? Satan changes tack. And says, oh, you, you can eat from that tree. That one tree that God has said you can't eat from. Oh, you can go ahead with that. Causes them to doubt the goodness of God in one moment. And the very next moment, causing them to be tempted into something that God had said, no, don't go there. And that's, that dynamic is repeated throughout history, uh, no longer through uh, a slippery serpent that's crawled into your garden, but by persuasive ideas. People speaking on behalf of God, but misrepresenting them. And I was just thinking about that. I just thought, how many thousands of people in this nation had some kind of church experience in their upbringing, which they subsequently rejected and walked away from. Why? I think in many cases it will be because God was being misrepresented. All these extra laws being created. And, and a heavy burden placed on people's shoulders. No. So the generosity of God, what, what's that? No, it's all about these extra rules. You can't do this, you can't do that, you can't do the other. And you find a whole generation... Or more of people in this nation who thought, I can't be done with this. Can you see that that this isn't just historically uh, a battle that once was raging. It's, It's happened, it's happening, it's right now. In God's God's kingdom. How do we portray God? As a a church, as a people, as an individual, what ideas do people get about God by listening to us and observing our lives? Do they think, wow, God is good? Or do they think, oh, well, I'm a Christian, you see, so I I can't do this and I I can't do that and I can't do the other. Um, So you you go and have fun. I'll be here busy being a Christian. Is that inadvertently the impression that we are giving? Can you see this massive... Battle and how relevant it is for us to consider today. In the light of it, it would be tempting to say, you know, the gospel's getting contested, there's a big spiritual battle going on, but everything's okay. Everything's okay for us. I mean, there are, there are perhaps other Christians, there are other churches, and they, they should be, they should be a bit more concerned, they should be a bit more savvy, but, but we're okay. Uh, we've, we've got it nailed. So just relax, folks. Take it easy. Don't, don't think about it. Um, we don't need to be overly concerned. Well, Paul doesn't say that to Timothy. Paul doesn't tell Timothy, relax. Everything's okay. You're fantastic. I mean, you're so gifted. Uh, it's all going to work out perfectly um, on just good intentions and so on. Now, what he says is train yourself. See that there in verse something, in verse 7? Train yourself 
to be godly. Train yourself to be godly. That's what we're going to focus on uh, this morning in light of this, the significance of the spiritual battle around us and the fact that the, God, the true gospel will always be contested by people who may appear to be representing it but who aren't. In light of all of this, what sort of people are we to be? Are people who are training themselves to be godly. The very word train, it straight away conjures up the image of the, of the gym, the gymnasium. Train, train yourself to be godly. There's no place here for a casual attitude. Godliness is that we become more and more like God. More and more God-fearing. More and more God-centered. And, and, and Paul is drawing attention to this by, by putting it as another of those trustworthy sayings. This is the third trustworthy saying that we've come across. Um, and there's a total of, of five. And this... Uh, this one comes here in verse, uh, in chapter 4, verse 8. For physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. This is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. So what does it mean for us to train ourselves into godliness. We were talking the other other week, weren't we, about making progress in the purposes of God by looking at how the disciples uh, obeyed Jesus, got into the boat and started rowing to the other side, just like Jesus said, and how they were uh, paddling. They were rowing through the night, three and a half miles over uh, over the Sea of Galilee to get to the other side, because Jesus said, go to the other side. And we noticed that then, that for for them... Uh, making progress in the purposes of God involved doing the same thing over and over again, rowing. It also meant they, they, they encountered Jesus walking out on water uh, towards them. What does it mean here as we look at this passage? Even Timothy is being encouraged to let it be seen that you're making progress in the purposes of, of God. So we're going to look at what it means to train ourselves uh, to be godly. Like I say, it would be tempting to say, it's okay, we can soft pedal, we can just take it easy because God's with us and he'll help us. And he will help us. And he is here. But like Timothy, we have this strong encouragement. This passage is, is littered with strong encouragements, one after the other. There's nothing casual. It's all kind of urgent. Seize the moment, Timothy. Keep going. Persevere. Practice these things. Be diligent. Devote yourself. So what is it that people do when they go into training? Well, people who get into some kind of physical training, and I can't speak from loads of experience here. I have done my research on what other people do. And uh, it's very fascinating. What are people... So here's what I've kind of deduced about people who go into physical training. Firstly, they become quite focused on their diet, on, on what they're eating. Because if they're going to train well, it's like they need to be giving their bodies the right fuel. Uh, they need to be kind of feeding themselves healthily. Paul, say, Paul says here to Timothy, you know, have, have nothing to do with, you know, have nothing to do with um, silly myths 
and so on. So it's almost the equivalent of saying, have, have nothing to do with spiritual junk food. Where people are training themselves, they think actually certain things just have to go. I'm, I'm getting rid. That's not going to help me achieve my objective. That's not going to help me towards my goal. I'm not going to get my personal best off the back of McDonald's. It's not going to happen. Um, so so in, in some respects, there's like a ruthlessness. Certain things have got to go. I mean, maybe maybe the England team are allowed like the occasional beer at the moment in this new kind of inspired Gareth Southgate era. But they're there representing the country because, because of their training. And a part of that will be uh, their diet. Timothy here is being said, no, devote yourself, devote yourself to the truths of the faith. In the exercising of his gift, he's told, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture. He's being encouraged to help feed the church. He's also being encouraged to feed himself. Feed yourself on the Word of God. And, and when you've really digested it and taken it to heart... You'll be able, you'll be in a position to encourage and strengthen others. Didn't Jesus say when he was being uh, tempted in the garden, he was, not in the garden, sorry, in the wilderness. He was being tempted just after his baptism, having gone into the wilderness, and he was fasting for 40 days. The Bible says that he was hungry. Um, And the devil came to him. And said, look, you could turn this stone here into food. You could turn this into bread. And what does Jesus say? He said, man does not live on bread alone. Matthew chapter 4 verse 4. But on every word that comes from the mouth of God. We don't, I'm, I'm not, that's not how I'm living. And, and that's where we go. You think, sometimes if we think about diets and we think about healthy, we just think I've got to eat less and I've, I've just got to eat salad. I don't know there are many athletes who are just eating salad. I, I think they're, they're eating, they're not just avoiding the rubbish. They're, they're, they're eating the food they need to that's giving them the power they need to. It's giving them the energy. It's giving their, their body the protein, the goodness, the nutrition it needs. So I was reading about one athlete and his, his regime was something like eating 12,000 calories a day. He's not just kind of thinking, I've got to get thin. He's got to think, I need, I need power. I need strength. And he's going to get that from this crazy, <laughs> crazy regime. How many eggs are you eating? Is that like, how many, is that like three chickens? I don't know. But he's eating a lot. But he's eating a lot of the good stuff. (laughs) Feeding on the word. It's not, my concern would be that there are lots of Christians today getting by on starvation rations. Not really eating that much. Maybe sometimes having a spiritual binge. But actually day to day, living in on not very much at all. But this desire, this need for power and help means actually other things, junk food effectively, might appear more uh, nourishing. Oh, we, we, we need a quick fix. We, we need some sugar. We need that rush. You know, we need to eat well all the time. I learned something this week. Somebody mentioned to me the training that London taxi drivers go through. I was amazed. I mean, I'm, 
nothing to do with Uber and just using an app to do it for you. What's the training that a London cabbie has to go through to get their license? You know, it could take them up to four years. I'm guessing that Stuart knows a thing or two about this. Uh, There's a test they have to undergo. There's a book that they are given. In that book, there are 320 basic routes that they have to memorize by heart. And it's not just that they have to be able to get from A to B 320 times. They have to know every road name, every junction, every significant landmark along the route. 320. They might never lead them. But that's their starting point. They have to know 25,000 roads. They have to be familiar with around 20,000 landmarks, buildings and points of interest. Because somebody might get into the cab not asking for the street. They might say, can you take me to that hotel? Can you take me to that government building? Can you take me somewhere else? And they know it. And they can do it. It's incredible Knowledge. You think, well, what's the goal for us? Is the goal just to amass knowledge? It's helpful. The goal is godliness. You think, well, what's a taxi driver doing with all this knowledge? How did they learn it in the first place? They didn't just learn it in a classroom. They didn't just learn it at home flicking through the A to Z or on Google Maps. They, They learnt it, probably like jumping on a moped, on the streets. Tracing out all of these different routes, being able to picture it all. And they've taken two to four years to do that if they didn't give up. And what does that mean? It means that in any given moment, they know which way to go. It's very practical. It's not just theory, it's lived out. They are ready for anything. They're ready for roadblocks. Ah, I can't go that way now. I've got, to, I've got to know another way of getting through. They're ready for traffic. They're ready to do it in the night. They're ready to do it in the daytime. They're ready to answer people's questions. They're ready for the unexpected. And you think, in the course of a career as of a black cabbie, how many hundreds of thousands of people get into the back of their taxi? And they're able to take them through. It says in... Hebrews chapter 4, I think. Hebrews chapter 5, in fact. Verse 11. We have much to say about this, but it's hard to explain because you're slow to learn. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. Those taxi drivers have, and probably still are, training themselves. By constant use, not the kind of occasional kind of cram for an exam, but by by constant use. It's not necessarily saying for us in terms of getting hold of the word of God that we're gonna, uh, we've got to read the Bible in a day. Just massive amount. It's just constant use of the right stuff. Feeding ourselves, getting hold of God's truth, processing it, digesting it, mixing it with faith, living it, praying it, encouraging other people with it. So can I ask you, what's your appetite like? 
What's your, what's your diet like at the moment? Is, is there spiritual junk food, which is, is how you're getting by? Or just by, by nourishing yourself constantly on, on the word of God? It's like this is, if we want to be godly, here's, here's God's autobiography. If we want to get to know him, here are the pages to turn and to feed ourselves, feed ourselves on it. The Bible is the most godly book. So if we're training ourselves for godliness, it's this that we get hold of, it's this that we digest, and it's this that changes us. This person was even telling me that this, the, I guess the size, the shape, the proportions of a taxi driver's brain is affected, it is changed. Their brains are changed by the training they go through. And God wants us to be able to know in real life, whatever the challenge or roadblock or situation or question or person we've just met, we, we've got a way of walking on God's path. We've got a way of helping others through to truth because we've helped ourselves there. So physical training, focusing on diet, that's what is so uh, important to help us in training ourselves in godliness. What else? Well, people who get into physical training, as well as focusing on what they eat, will also focus on their, on their everyday routine, on their, on their lives. People who go into physical training, they become creatures of habit. It's not that every day is necessarily exactly the same as the previous one, but they, they have a plan. The plan might change, but they're, they're working to a plan. They have a coach. They have a certain regime. They're looking to stretch themselves uh, to achieve uh, their own personal bests. And therefore, they're, they're disciplining themselves. What we're familiar with is that stadium moment when Jessica Ennis got the gold. That, that kind of super Saturday or whenever it was in the Olympics where so many Brits did well, got gold medals. You think, wow, he is, she is the best in the world at that particular discipline. How come? Because for years, behind closed doors, when not many people or no one at all is watching, they've gone through their training. They've listened to their coach. It's practice which is unseen. Jesus said something similar about prayer. In Matthew chapter 6 and verse 5, he said, And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. I tell you the truth, they've received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father, who is unseen. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. This encouragement to... The secret place of prayer, this encouragement to meeting with our Heavenly Father behind a closed door that no one else knows about. If you like physical training and you jump on your bike, then kind of in today's day, you might have a certain app and then all your mates know straight away what you've just done. You kind of share the route, how many kind of meters you climbed, what distance you covered, what time you did it in, was it a personal best, who are you better than, you know, who are you yet to beat. So even something that you might do personally and privately, 
go for a run, kind of becomes public knowledge. Which is fine. Spiritually speaking, it's really, it'd be really odd if there's like a, a Bible app. Share with your friends. I've been praying. Fifteen minutes. That means I'm better than you, but not quite as good as you. Yes, that, we're not living for that kind of information. <laughs> we're not living for that kind of competition. We're training ourselves. We're seeking God. And he wants to meet with us and reward us on the basis of things done in secret. In the place of prayer, getting behind a closed door and saying, I'm going to pray. I'm going to spend time with my heavenly father. Uh, Timothy is being encouraged, isn't he, to be a good servant, to set an example. Not just by virtue of his diet, but, uh, or by his teaching, getting hold of the word of God. But, but in in his whole life, setting an example, says in verse 12, set an example for the believers in speech, in life, in love, in faith, in purity. The whole of his life, a realm to demonstrate godliness, being diligent. Ultimately, that progress will be seen. There will be moments, there will be times when others can see the progress that Timothy has made. And that's, that's genuinely helpful and encouraging. You may not see the progress you've made yourself until somebody else comes up to you and said, you've really moved on, haven't you? So it becomes apparent, but it's one in secret. I was reading about uh, one of the most decorated Olympian. In fact, he must be the most decorated Olympic athlete. Michael Phelps. Do you want to take a guess? Maybe you know. How many, how many medals through every Olympics he's contested in? How many medals has Michael Phelps won? Do you reckon it's more than five? Do you reckon it's more than ten? Do you reckon it's more than fifteen? Do you reckon it's more than twenty? Do you reckon it's more than twenty-five? You would be right. He has 28 medals. 23 of them, I was about, I could have gone, do you guess it's more than 30? Yeah, well you're wrong. No, we didn't go there. Um, 28 medals. 23 of them are gold. I learned some fascinating things about Michael Phelps this week. He's like reasonably tall. But what's, Im- what's amazing and what helps him to swim well is, is his, his arm span Let's get this right. It's 201 centimetres, just over two metres that way, which is like several inches further than he is tall. Do you know what else I found out about Michael Phelps? In proportion to his body, his, his torso, as well as being really slim, is like really long. He's got a really long body and really short legs. And for some reason, that really helps with swimming. Not only that... But I think his knee bends both ways. He's got a double joint. Do you know what I mean? No wonder. He's got his, his knees bend both ways. And I think his ankles do the same. He's got size 14 feet. And his ankles hyperextend. So he's the nearest thing to a dolphin that like, man has ever known. I think, no wonder. But we can still say, why did he win 28 medals? Because of his discipline. Because of his training. That's not going to count for much on McDonald's on a couch, is it? He, he is a successful Olympic athlete by virtue of his training. 
Even here, Paul is saying to Timothy, don't, don't neglect your gift. It's in you by the laying on of the hands. You might think, oh, it's not, it's not fair, is it? It's not fair for Michael Phelps to be so kind of impressively built. It's not fair for, for Timothy to have some uber spiritual gift imparted to him by, by the laying on of hands. When the elders did it, well, the elders haven't done that for me. Bloody blah, blah, you know. All of us, gifted by God, now don't neglect your gift. You have it. There's got to be a choice and a determination to exercise it, to put it to use, to keep going, to not be discouraged. Think, well, I'm not quite sure I've got the opportunity that Timothy had. I'm not sure I have the opportunity that Michael Phelps had. I'm not sure I'm going to be in some Olympic stadium with lots of people. Don't worry about the opportunities. Let God take care of the opportunity. You train yourself to be godly. It's something that we do in cooperation with the Holy Spirit. Train yourself. In godliness, train yourself in the word. Train yourself in your character. Train yourself in your own personal disciplines. I was reminded this week as well about a book called The Insanity of God. It was written a few years ago under a pseudonym, I think, a guy called Nick Ripkin. And the book is, his, is about his and his wife's quest to find out how does the Christian faith flourish in extreme hardship. So Ruth was mentioning earlier on about the octonauts. Um, I've learned quite a lot through the octonauts. And and, and that that darkest, deepest zone of the ocean. How can can there be life down there? We we get that there can be life near the surface and in the twilight zone. I was paying attention. But the midnight zone. Lights can't really get down there. So much pressure under the water, all that weight of water on top of these creatures. How is that, how is it possible that life is down there? And that's the question they're asking. How is it possible that there is life, Christian faith, thriving under so much pressure of persecution? How does it work? How do people do it? And so they went around the world. And on one occasion, they went to the Soviet Union. Well, they went to Russia. It was no longer the Soviet Union. And they met with Christians who could remember life in a communist regime when the government of the nation uh, outright opposed the Christian faith. It was kind of effectively illegal to be a believer. Unless you were prepared as a pastor or as a Christian to compromise massively... Uh, then you would be under threat of arrest, imprisonment, death, opposition of all sorts. So I thought, they went there. They met a man called Dimitri. Dimitri was a Christian pastor. And he spent 17 years in prison because he would not compromise on his faith. How does faith work in a Russian Soviet prison? For 17 years. What were his disciplines? What did he do? How did he get by? How did he, how did his faith grow? And Dimitri said there's a few things that he did. At daybreak, he'd stand up by his bed and he would sing the same song every day. 
And he knew what would happen next. He's in this massive prison. There are thousands of other inmates along the same corridor. So he knew that he would just be derided. But every day he determined that he would stand up and sing to God. What else did he do? There was one other key strategy he had. When he found a scrap of paper somewhere in the prison, he'd kind of tuck it away, and when he got back to his cell, he'd write every scripture that he could remember. He didn't have a Bible with him. He'd just write every scripture that he could remember on this scrap of paper, and then it kind of flow into his own kind of praise and worship, all written down, fold it up, and there was a cold, dripping pipe running through the corner of his cell, um, dripping in the summertime, frozen in the wintertime. And, and what he'd do is, is fold up this piece of paper and just stick it to the top of the pipe. And it was like his offering of praise to God. He'd just stick it on the top. And he knew what would happen next. He knew that when that piece of paper was spotted, he would get beaten. He, he knew. Um, he, and the only reason he was in prison, because he wouldn't sign a form compromising his faith, recanting his faith, and confessing to be a spy for the Americans. All he had to do to get out of prison was sign a piece of paper. But for 17 years, he's just putting bits of paper. And then one day, it happens where he's outside. in the, And this is like one of the highlights, I suppose, if you can call them that. He finds a sheet of A4 paper, which is like gold, in the, in the court. And he picks up a pencil, which was next to it. And he just thinks, this is a gift from God. This is amazing. So he takes it back to his cell. And he fills the whole piece of paper with scriptures that he can remember and his praise and worship. And he folds it up. A4, it's a bit more conspicuous. And he pops it up on the wall. Pops it up on the pipe. It's seen. And he's dragged from his cell. He's going to, he knows he's going to go and be beaten. But after, I don't know whether this is 17 years or 16 years or how many years, but as he's being dragged along the corridor, all these inmates who have been opposing him and deriding him start to sing the song that he sang every morning. And the guards drop him on the floor and say, who are you? And, and he's later released. And so this guy writing the book, he's just sat down with Dimitri having a conversation saying, will you sing the song for me? A disciplined man who grew in godliness and whose faith didn't just survive those 17 years. A discipline is not some ugly word. It's not a punishment, even as we were hearing last week. It's something to use. Those who undergo physical training with these goals and personal bests and medals in mind discipline themselves. And I guess, again, that means that certain things have to go. Distractions. And they can appear utterly kind of ruthless almost. Why aren't you coming out with us? Why aren't you having fun? Why aren't you doing this? Now, I'm not saying you can't have fun, you can't go out and do stuff, but... The, the friends of athletes must think, yeah, we'll, we'll see them, but we won't see them all the time. 
They're not always available. Why? Because they're training themselves. They're disciplining themselves. There are different ways of getting into God's word. There are different uh, routines, I suppose, that we could use. And sometimes it could be tempting to say, as a church, we're all going to do, and then announce some big Bible reading scheme for, uh, for the year. Come on, folks, let's all do it together. No, let's not. You train yourself, I'll train myself, it will be different. We've got the Holy Spirit as our personal coach. He'll lead us, he'll say, well, you've just done this big reading plan. How about now just focus on this book here? Well, you read the Psalms. Some of the Psalms are in the morning. Some of the Psalms are in the evening. We have different opportunities, different routines. Your routine does not have to look like mine. Mine doesn't have to look like yours. Like Richard, you can fall behind a bit. That's okay. But having a plan does make a lot of sense. It's not just going to happen to us. It's a choice that we're making to feed ourselves, to discipline our Sometimes the danger could be that having kind of sat on the couch, I think to myself, I'm going to run a marathon. I'm going to train for the marathon. I'm going to do it tomorrow. And then for some reason, I'm really like disappointed when after, well, let's, let's be generous, I'll, I'll do two miles. After two miles, I realize I'm not quite cut out for this. I had this great goal. Oh, forget it. I'm not going to try. I'm going back to the couch. When we set ourselves a goal, we might also just need to bear in mind thinking, what's the next step? Dream big, but have a next step. And the next step might be to run around the block a couple of times a week. Introducing something. So what's, what's, I could say, what's your big plan? I might just say, what's your next step? Do you have do you have a step? Do you, what are you doing at the moment? What do you think you'll do next? When it comes to getting into the word of God and praying with the door closed. So diet, discipline. Also, I sometimes wondered, why do people want to do half marathons and marathons? What's, what's the appeal? Has anybody else just pondered that? It's great, but why are you doing it? Um, ultimately, because they want to. And that's a bit crazy. But ultimately, because they want to. That there is, there's not just a good diet and good discipline, but it becomes a delight. I think people who get into physical training start to delight in what they're doing. They experience the benefits, they experience the value of it, and so they keep going. They push themselves a little bit further. An example of this was, I remember a couple of years ago, uh, one of my sisters came to stay with us in Sheffield. She's in London. She came up and stayed with us uh, for a weekend. At that time, and just for a brief time, I hasten to add, I was attempting to go for a run once in a while. And so, so my sister said, can I come too? I said, yeah, you can. I was just, I was very satisfied with myself because I thought, yes, I, I've got just a little bit in reserve. She's slightly struggling. The younger brother is doing all right. Um, we did a run for a couple of miles. After that, I couldn't be bothered. So I stopped running. Um, but she kept going. 
And it's, she is, she's evangelistic for Jesus, but she's evangelistic about running. She runs. She does those half marathons. Why? Because she enjoys it. Therefore, she makes time for it. She's got commitments. She's got a job. There's other things going on in life. She's part of a church, but she makes some time to maintain it. And she'll enthuse about it and she'll encourage you to do it. It will really benefit you. You'll get the value of it. Go for it. My encouragement would be, let's keep that in mind, spiritually speaking. It's like a positive loop develops. You know, in the Psalms it says, delight yourself in the Lord. He will give you the desires of your hearts. That's a wonderful encouragement. But we think about it, if we, does that mean any desire? Well, if we're delighting ourselves in the Lord, actually it's affecting what we desire. It's affecting our hearts. And so the Lord is blessing us with what we want, but he's changing our hearts at the same time so that we want what he wants. And it encourages us and spurs us on. That's why Paul and Timothy, well, Paul can say of them both, we labor and strive for this. Not just some dry, dutiful, dull discipline, but we're delighting in the God who's rescued us. We're delighting to get to know him better. We're delighting in the truth that godliness has uh, benefit, has uh, value uh, and promise for both the present life and the life to come. It has value for all things. So we're laboring and striving. We're kind of exercising ourselves. We're training ourselves on purpose, but this is what we delight in. It's not just some undesirable hardship. It's that we, we're getting to know God better and we're loving him. And we're loving the fact that by his Holy Spirit, he's leading us. What do you delight in? If you're in Christ, if you're a believer in Jesus, then all I've told you this morning is actually about what you want to do. The Spirit is willing And the Spirit is in us. And the Spirit desires godliness, desires Jesus. So actually, if you're already a believer in Jesus, all I'm doing is saying, you already desire him. Now, he wants to lead you and encourage you in your delight of him. Like Timothy then, being a Good servant of the Lord. I guess he was called to a very particular part to play in the kingdom of God. We don't have to go overboard in comparing and contrasting. Well, what am I called to? What's he called to? What's she called to? Is it a bit like Timothy? Is it like this? Let's not get caught up with those kind of ways of thinking. The Lord has ways of making it plain. The Lord has ways of speaking into our lives by the word and by the Holy Spirit. Come this way. Follow me here. Let's trust him. He's going to do that. You're in him. So let's train ourselves for godliness. Let's pursue him. Maybe that means taking a new step this week. Maybe some of you are, spiritually speaking, as it were, already doing the equivalent of the half marathon. But there are lots of different things. Some people are able to give themselves to lots of different activities. Some people are just focused on one thing. Some people do Pilates. Some people do weightlifting. But let's, let us train ourselves for godliness in his word, in our character, 
in our prayer life, in life, in love, in all things. Why? Because we care about the gospel. Because the gospel has impacted our lives. Because he's leading us on something that's incredibly, eternally worthwhile. A gold medal, that must be pretty awesome to get one of those. To get 23 gold medals, wow. Well, you're not taking those to glory. But there's a value and there's a blessing that comes when we say, yes, I'm going to train myself in godliness. Amen? Amen. Let's...